0: As we get right into God's word and and hear about this great God that called us all again, so glad to have you here uh, with us. Let's jump in the text and read about our great Savior. Matthew chapter 4 reads like this, from then on Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter. And his brother Andrew, they were casting their net into uh, into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains. The demon possessed the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you. Just in part to say thank you for being such a good father on a day like today. There's some of us that can look to our dads and they've been a great picture. They pointed to you, Father. There's some of us that uh, look and we see our dads have been a terrible picture. But what it's done is it's created a longing in us to know you, Father. Uh, Whatever we have had, Father, it's meant to point to you. So would you remind us? Um, that you are a good father. You'll never leave us. You won't forsake us. And more than that, Father, um, it's it's not just that you won't leave us and you won't forsake us, but you've promised not to leave us alone ever, Father. We don't have to worry. We don't have to control or steer our own lives. You've provided us with a path to follow, and you want to steer us towards contentment and peace, so help us not to be proud. Fill us with the humility that's required to experience the contentment that you promised, be with us today as we read from your word and hear about your son who's meant to reveal you, Father. Would the Spirit of God help us today, Father? Help us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, i let you take your seats. I tend to try to read pretty widely and uh, broadly, and as you read wide and broad, you find there's a lot of helpful authors and quotes and things that kind of help to frame conversations, lots of truths that you find in the most unexpected places. I've shared this one before, but there's no better way I can think to capture this text uh, than with this quote, and the quote is this, I always get to where I'm going. By walking away from where I've been. Winnie the Pooh. I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I've been. It's insightful uh, because what it tells you and I is that to follow somebody or something means to forfeit something. If you're ever going to walk somewhere... You have to turn your back to something or someone. And quite frankly, uh, this is what makes following Jesus so hard. Following Jesus always requires you to leave something or someone. That's a requirement. And when you and I would rather not do something that's required of us, do you know what we have? We've got to wrestle on our hands. Does following Jesus ever feel like a wrestle to you? Some of us genuinely want to walk with Jesus, but immediately, right? It's not even like it's unclear what Christ would have us to do. Immediately, when we think of the implications of giving our lives completely over to him, something rises up and it stops us. We think about Maybe some of the fun that we'll miss out on, the relationships that we'll lose, the status, the job that we may have to turn down, the money that we may have to lead on the table. We think of something, and it causes us to have a reservation about what seemed like it was pretty clear, that life is going really good right now, and I don't want to do anything to disrupt it. There's some of us in here that have already made the decision that what's on the table is too valuable for me to walk away from. So you may be here because being at church on Father's Day is the right thing to do. But inside you feel like, I know exactly what it's going to cost me to walk with Jesus. And I think that the price is too steep. You may not be in a wrestle. You may feel like you're resolved. I hope to shake things up by the time that we're through here. Uh, What I just want to start off and say is this look, a wrestle isn't bad. It's not wrong. It's human. But an unresolved wrestle has consequences. Here's what I mean by that every wrestle begins with something small, a reservation. And when you make a reservation for a hotel, you go in and say, hey, I'm going to be here, so I have every right to be here. You have every right to have the reservations that you do about Christianity. A a wrestle always starts with something small, something that says, I think it's clear what God called me to do, but I don't want to do that. And a wrestle is fine, but an unresolved wrestle um, is like an unpatched roof. And a leak, if it's unpatched or unchecked or unresolved, can end up crumbling the roof on top of you. An unresolved wrestle, when it comes to walking with Jesus, can end up crumbling your faith. While the wrestle may start with a reservation, it almost always leads to this. This half-hearted devotion when it comes to walk with Christ. And this half-hearted devotion to you pursuing the life of your dreams. And what a half-hearted devotion to Christ and a half-hearted to you pursuing your life of your dreams, that only leaves you with a full heart of discontentment. And here's how I know I'm discontent. I find myself envying. Do you ever envy? Do you find yourself looking at certain folks' faith and say, man, I envy the resolve and the commitment that they have to to God. While in the same breath, seeing somebody that's advanced in the world with status and possessions and say, I envy all the stuff that they have. You find yourself envying people that are fully devoted to what it is that they give their lives to. And when we're one foot in and one foot out, when we're halfway devoted, it just leaves us with a full heart of discontentment. Do you know why? Because each of these things, following Jesus and trying to lead your own life, each of those things work against each other. They put you in a wrestle. There are competing values and or priorities that when you try to do both, do you know what you have? You have yourself at a place where your conscience always nags you. Maybe in church, and you spend your time thinking and daydreaming about all the stuff that you could be doing or could be getting or should be doing. And then when you find yourself at work, Your conscience nags you because you know that you should be maybe more forthright about your faith. Maybe your job should be more of a platform to do the things of God. And you just find yourself in this place where there's this constant wrestle. And the worst news is this. You don't live in a vacuum. So people are going to judge the benefit of walking with Jesus by looking at the lives of you who claim to walk with him. And a half-hearted devotion that leads to a full heart of discontentment doesn't convince anybody that Jesus is worth following. All they see is somebody who has a tormented soul, who's constantly discontent and mad and frustrated and upset, absent of the joy that the Lord provides. So the question is, how do we follow Jesus? How do we really walk with him? Without this wrestle or this reservation, what I love about this text right here that we're going to be in is that throughout the Gospels, if you just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things that you'll find out is that the disciples are so often examples of what not to do. So you look at their lives and it's like, don't be like Peter here. Don't be like James and John's. Look at them and you see how they miss the marks. Get to Acts before you see them really start to do things right. What I love about this text is this is probably one of the most important and pivotal texts that we read in our scripture when it comes to faith and what it means to walk with God. And the disciples here are a great picture of what to do because they walk with Jesus. They follow him without reservation how do we do that how do we resolve the wrestle i learned um years ago that people will only um act on what they believe and you'll only believe what we can understand so i think we have to start off with a little bit of understanding The Gospel of Matthew, the first four chapters, are all about who Jesus is. So it starts off and he's the promised king, right? So he's going to come into the world, and Jesus is going to come, and he's going to claim to be a king. And he's going to say his realm of authority is about all of life. It's not just about the religious part of your, your life. He's a king that's meant to dictate everything about you, absolutely everything. And so what we see from the start is Jesus is this promised king that God has sent into the earth. God is going to supernaturally preserve his life because he has a purpose for Jesus. In Matthew 3, Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is near, telling people to repent. In Matthew chapter 4, look, Jesus proves that he's the king. He proves he does what nobody else can do. He stands face to face with Satan And beats him at his own game. So we see that he's a king with all this power that he's worthy to be followed. And then on top of that, this king, instead of going to the political and religious centers of the world to proclaim this news, do you know what he does? He goes to the hood to the forgotten about places. He goes to the places that nobody wants to go and that's where he sets up shop. That's his home base because he wants to provide or proclaim this hope to hopeless people that live in a hopeless place. And then what we see here in this text is Jesus comes across two sets of brothers and he calls them. And here's what I want you to see. Listen, listen. following Jesus... Um, it always means that you're going to have to leave something. In order to follow Jesus, you have to leave something. You have to forsake something. Nobody's a hitchhiker when it comes to Jesus. You know what a hitchhiker is, right? We don't really have those anymore because we have Uber. But what, what I learned back in the day as I watched TV is that when people wanted to get someplace, they would stand on the side of the road, and they would stick their thumb out. They would say, I'm headed this way, and I'm just trying to find somebody that's headed where I'm going, and maybe they can help me get there faster. That's not Christianity. Because when it comes to following Jesus, what the Bible's going to outline is that nobody's going where he's going. That all of us are trying to go one way, and what he does, he comes in and he calls people and says, Um, get in the car, we're actually gonna go this way. Right? Look, look what takes place here in verse 18. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people, immediately they left their nets and followed him. A few things that are important. One, Jesus comes in, and he's the one that's doing the calling. When you tell somebody to follow you, what you're saying is you're either incorrect or ignorant. You either don't know where where to go or you're wrong in the way that you're trying to go. So in order to get where you really want, you have to follow me. Jesus comes, and here's, here's what's really uh, 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 the key here. He looks at these these guys, and he tells them that they are to come with him. If we know a little bit of the context, we would see this is unheard of. Back in this day, for a disciple... For him to be with a well-respected rabbi was more like you trying to get into Harvard. Harvard's not coming to your doorstep and saying, why don't you come to school here? And if they are, it's probably because you're impressive, you're extraordinary. What Jesus does is he comes not to people that are extraordinary, he calls people that are very ordinary. He calls. He initiates. And they respond. And hear this. I want you to grasp this. Matthew's going to go into great lengths in verse 20 and 22 to say this. Look, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him, to lead, to walk with Jesus, you have to leave something. Everybody doesn't have to leave the same thing, but everybody does have to leave something. And what we read in this story is this. Look, the things that they left were valuable. So again, we don't know the context, so we see, ah, oh, well, they were just Fishermen. These were not rich men by any stretch of the means, but they weren't poor men by any stretch of the means either. Right Back in this day, fish was a major staple. So you didn't just cook with fish, right? Fish could be cooked a bunch of ways. It could be yeah, baked. It could be broiled. I'm sure somebody found out how to put some cornstarch on it and, yeah, and fry it, right? Fish was there, but fish was also used to provide oil for lambs. Fish was also used as fish oil for medicine. Fish was an industry, right? It's kind of like corn, right? You look on the back and you find high fructose corn syrup in everything, right? Fish was a part of everything. So these were guys that fished. James and John, they not only fished but it says that they had a boat and, and, and their dad was on the boat. So this is a family business. This is a source of dignity, of pride, of security, of financial stability. And Jesus says, come. And Matthew goes in a great lengths not just to say that they came, but to mention what it is that they left. Listen. This sheds light. A little bit of light of verse 17, where Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. To repent is to change one's mind and to reorder one's priorities. So it's not just saying stop doing bad things and start doing good things. It's not just saying stop doing the things that are impermissible and wrong." and do the things that are okay and permissible and right, Jesus doesn't call any of these guys to leave from anything immoral. It's not about permissibility, right or wrong. It's about priority or position, first or second. Jesus says, there's something that I have for you. There's a place that I want to lead you to, and it's going to require you, listen, not just to give up something, but to rearrange the fundamental way that you think about life as a whole. And in order to walk with him, it's going to require you to leave something. Their following Jesus leaves their life open to misinterpretation. But on one hand, it may look like they've abandoned or they've left their families. They've left money on the table. They've left their careers. I'm sure there's folks in their lives that are saying, we worked this hard to put you through college, to put you through school, so that you can do what with your life now? We spent our lives trying to work. To get you out of the hood so that you can move somewhere? And you mean to tell me now with all of your freedom you want to move back where? We've spent our lives investing in you, giving you this skill set in an instrument, in sports. And you could make all of this money and you mean to tell me that you want to leave all that on the shelf so that you can do what? What? It seems absolutely senseless. But what we get are these men that have left it all. Immediately, it doesn't seem like there was a wrestle and they turned their back on it. The question that I have for you um, is, what have you left behind to follow Jesus? Here's what I don't want that to be. I don't want that to be a thing where you uh, rank your faithfulness to God by how much you've left behind or think I've left behind a whole lot so Christ must know that I really love him. On one hand, it's just for you to remember It's just for you to be reminded, those of you that have walked with God for some time but have found things stale, it's just for you to remember that there was a point in time where you thought Jesus was so valuable that nobody had to talk you out of leaving that relationship. Nobody had to talk you out of leaving money on the table and not making as much as you could. Nobody had to talk you out of that thing that you gave your life to. You thought Jesus was so valuable that you willingly left it. What, what have you left to walk with him? Remember those things. It's also a good diagnostic. If you spend your time trying to think back, and you say, well, John, I don't really know how to answer that question because I've never really left anything to walk with him. I've just kind of walked with him my whole life. And I would say, when it comes to following Jesus, nobody hitchhikes. He doesn't just take you where you're going faster He reorients your life completely. And if there hasn't been that reorientation, then maybe it's worth considering. Uh, Maybe I haven't turned my back on anything because I'm not really following Jesus. Following Jesus means that we have to leave something. It's going to cost you something, and so you may say, "John, so are you trying to tell me that I've got to leave behind everything like they did? That I've just got to walk away from my job, from my house, from my family?" That sounds kind of creepy and kind of cultish. And I would say that is right. Um, right? Jesus is not in the business of creating deadbeat fathers who abandon their responsibilities all in the name of pursuing some type of pseudo-faithfulness. So what I'm not saying is, right, and folks do some crazy things, they'll read and they'll say, all right, sweetheart, we got to go home, we got to sell all our stuff, and we've got to do just what they did. That's not what this is starting to call us to. It's highlighting that these men walked away from something. That's in one sense. But in another sense, I think that we see they walk away Not just from something, you don't just have to leave something, but we, all of us, have to leave the same thing. Christ is calling every one of us here to leave the same thing. And that thing that he's calling us to leave is autonomy, self-governance, freedom from influence he's calling us to leave behind you individual by yourself determining your path through life and your purpose for life right look look at these words here in verse 19 Christ comes in and says this look follow me that's the path that he wants us to walk on and i will make you fish for men he's requiring an entire life change, a confession like we talked about, to follow somebody, you're saying, I don't know where it is that I should go. But here's the beauty. It's not just that we need somebody to lead us, which is inherent in what he says. The comforting thing is that we have somebody to lead us. Jesus is inviting, he's calling out for people to follow him. This is not something that you have to stumble your way through and try to figure out. It's not something that you have to work for. It's something that he's going to great lengths to make sure that it's way out there. As we've talked about in the past few weeks, Jesus preaching this message of the gospel, the fact that 2,000... Years later, this Bible is the most read book in the history of the world, and it's still here. The fact that he's created you and sovereignly placed you in the United States where you feel a sense of religious freedom, and you don't have to worry about being found in a church. The fact that on this Sunday morning, he placed you right here to hear what? His invitation. The best part about this is he doesn't just provide information, but he promises a transformation. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't just talk about what he wants them to do in terms of him. He talks about what he wants them to do with their lives. This is simultaneously a call to both follow and Lee, basically what he's trying to say is this, and I want you to hear this. Your life is not about you, and your life is not for you. Your life is not about you. It is about God, the maker of heaven and earth, created you for him. And until you rest in him, your heart's going to be restless. And your life is not just about God and his glory. Your life is for others. God didn't just make you so that you could live for you. God didn't just make you so that you could enjoy the life of your dreams. He made you for somebody else to serve. There's a lot in my life, friendships, relationships, marriage that has taught me this point, but no uh, thing has taught me this point like fatherhood. So my wife and I have been married for 12 years. Um, and I try to do my best on my best days to serve my wife, but uh, there are certain times where uh, we aren't on the best of terms and we get frustrated, and she'll ask for, for something. We're in the bed, John, can you get up and give me a cup of water? And although I took all those vows years ago that, you know, I would love and protect for better or worse, what I would say because I'm so angry is get your own water do you know why I say that because hey this isn't a matter of life or death yes I'm here to serve her but even if I walk away and turn my back on her this time she's not going to die of thirst she can do it herself but then we adopted our daughter And she was premature. So she had to eat every three hours. One of the things you find out about kids um, is kids are horrible roommates. They don't pick up after, after themselves. They don't really add anything or serve in any way except for the occasional smile or giggle. Uh... But they take and they take and they take and they take and they take. So weeks went by and we didn't sleep very much because we had to feed her every three hours. Not just feed her, but wake her up so that we could feed her. And one day, um, after she was just a horrible person to me all day, we go to sleep. And she wakes up that's cute <laughs> until they're in your home and you say ah. she wakes up she starts screaming at the top of her lungs she needs to eat do i respond to her the same way that i respond to Chandra when she was getting on my nerves well no because on one hand, it's, no, no, if, if I don't help you here, there's something at stake. This is really life or death. There's an obligation that I have to you that will determine how you live and grow. Y'all, I think this is the picture that God gives us when it comes to how you and I are to use our lives for the sake of other people. that God could have come up with a thousand ways to share the truth of the gospel, to bring people into the kingdom. But do you know what he does? Instead of Jesus doing all of the work of inviting ev- ev- everybody in, he spends the bulk of his life and he calls in 12 men and says, do you know what? I want to use you to make this love of God very, very tangible, and I want to personally meet the most important need of everybody, so I want to introduce me through you. Your life is not about you, and it's not for you. Your life is about God, and it's for others. So when Christ is saying he wants All of us, in order to walk with them, we have to give up autonomy. That's what rubs us the wrong way. Because we don't want to give it up. Do you know why we don't want to give it up? Because we think that somehow the quality of our lives will decrease if we don't make life about us and for us. So we live our lives as if it is about us and for us. How do I know? Because you're probably like me, and I make life about me or for me. How do I know? I look at three things. I look at what I work for, I look at what I worry about, and I look at what I want or what I pray for. What I work for. What do you work for, right. Not just money, right? Money is a means to an end, right? Money is only good because it gets you something, right? If, if you're starving, all the money in the world does you no good because you can't eat it. You have to exchange it for something. What do you work for? Do you work for the approval of people? Do you work really, really hard so that you can get status, respect? Do you work really hard because you think that money is security for you? Not just what you work for, what do you worry about? What stresses you out? Are you overly concerned with what people think about you? Do you find yourself so incredibly self-conscious at work, at school, sitting in church on a Sunday? Do you worry that all of your work, all of your efforts aren't going to get you what it is that you really want? If none of those apply, here's the last way that you can know if you really live for you if you've made life about you what are your prayers like what do you pray for are your prayers constantly filled with God heal me help me promote me move me fix this for me when you bring other people into your prayers are they oh, oh, always, God, change them. Help them to see what I want. What you work for, what you worry about, and what you want all reveals this look. That we want life to be about us. We want control. And Jesus is telling us to forfeit control and allow him to dictate not just what we do, but who we do it four and you know, y'all listen that's good news what we don't realize is that your autonomy your trying to control your life is actually the source of your anxiety when you forfeit control of your life you're not forfeiting contentment you're just forfeiting you leading yourself into contentment you're entrusting it to somebody else. You're saying, listen, I've tried and I've worked hard and I've done all of these things. And, John, I still find myself in here today, somebody that's in complete control of my life, but I'm discontent with the life that I have. You don't just need to make a better decision. You need to let somebody else dictate the way decisions are made. When you forfeit control, you don't forfeit contentment. Forfeiting control is how you gain peace. When you lose autonomy, you actually lose the source of your anxiety because you put the responsibility on somebody else. Do do you remember when you were a kid and you thought that the way to really be happy in life was to be in charge of everything? I can't wait until I'm grown so that nobody can tell me when to go to bed, what I can eat, what I can't eat. And you know what you took for granted? That you had no clue how much money your parents paid in property taxes each year. <laughs> you had no clue of the anxiety that came into their lives when they, like me, got my tax bill in the mail last week and found out that my mortgage increased. Do you know what you did? You just lived. You went to bed, and you woke up. For most of us, breakfast was made. You were driven to school, came back. You you were told what time you had to go to bed, and it frustrated you. But then you woke up in the morning fresh and glad that you were told what time that you had to go to bed. And what you did was you experienced the joy and freedom that comes from somebody else leading things and taking care of things. But do you know what it cost you? Autonomy. Was it worth it? Absolutely right. We we wish that we could go back at times and experience that joy and that peace that comes. And you you would say, all right, John, I'm convinced. How do I change? I know that I want that, but I just can't seem to let go of things, right? How did these men so quickly and immediately choose to walk with Jesus and let him dictate? I think it was because they were convinced of this truth and i think here's the truth here's what holds it all together listen where jesus is leading is always better than what or who you're leaving where jesus is leading it's always better than anything that you have to leave behind and hear me listen This is why it's not about your resolve. You have to take this by faith. Because when we first start to walk with Jesus, we don't see it. We don't see it personally in our own lives, but we do see it in his life and how he lived. I love how this ends. Look at verse 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond. Where Jesus is leading is always better than where you're leaving. What he does right here before he starts in the gospel is this is Jesus who's talked about God's kingdom. Uh, Yeah, he's starting to come to earth and how he's going to repair and fix things. What he does is the people that find themselves in closest proximity to him, do you know what they get? This little foretaste of the kingdom. The fact that he's saying No, no, listen, one day God's going to rearrange the brokenness of this world that we live in, and he's saying that one day has actually started today. Come and get a little taste of it. It's like when you would be at home and, you know, waiting for Thanksgiving dinner to be cooked, and you just sit there and you hover, right? You smell all the smells, and you hover in the kitchen just waiting, and your folks say, it's not ready. It's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. But you still stay close by because you say, I I know it's not done yet, but I want to be a part of it as soon as it jumps off. So all the rest of the kids leave and you stay there and your mom cuts a little bit of that turkey. Not the like dry meat, but the little thigh, the dark meat. Y'all quit acting like y'all don't eat dry. I mean, Thanksgiving. And, and then what she does, she just slides a taste of it into your mouth. Hear about Thanksgiving, you can even remember what the last one was like, but there's something about tasting it that makes you convinced that you made the right choice in staying. The disciples, as they left everything, the security that they thought that they had, immediately what Jesus does is he walks them along and they see something that they never would have expected. They get this little foretaste of God's kingdom. And here's the best news. The Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to get to in a few weeks, is Jesus is going to proclaim what righteousness looks like for the Christian. He's going to talk about the demands that God has for us, which are good things. But what we see right here is Jesus gives of himself before he asks you and I to do anything. So these people's healing, them getting a foretaste, of the kingdom is not at all based on how well they live up to the standards that he's going to lay out. It's him giving this gift freely, and that's going to be a model for how it is that he lives life. If you and I want to be sure that this is actually going to work out, that where he leads is much better than what you and I have to leave behind, then all we have to do is look at his life. Jesus spends his life doing what God had called him to do, giving people this foretaste of God's kingdom. And then at the end of his life, he finds himself in a garden. And in this garden, on his knees in prayer, do you know what he's doing? He's weighed down with anxiety. It says so much that he's sweating drops of blood. And he prays this prayer, God, I know all things are possible for you, but not what I want, what you want. Jesus models the very thing that he's called us all to do. It's letting the Father dictate how he'll use us. And Jesus gets up. And the most amazing thing about the rest of the gospel story is that as he goes on his way to the cross and faces this brutal death, granted, it was hard, but what you see is a man enduring it with composure, with peace. The place where he agonizes the most is in the garden in prayer. And he moves through doing what God has called him to do until at the very point where he gives his life on the cross. He doesn't yell out, I can't believe it's finally happening. He's saying, God, I trust you into your hands. I commit my spirit. And it seems bad because he stays in the grave three days, but he gets up and he raises from the dead and then he goes back and does what he's done here and proclaims this to the disciples whose wrestle with following Jesus turned out into a resolution to maybe we made the wrong call, but as they see that Jesus is not just going to lead us in this life, but past this one, what they say is that we'll follow you, even if it's to death. We'll leave everything if it means that we get to go where you go. Where Jesus is leading is always so much better than what You're leaving. You have to take it by faith in your own life, but it's not unfounded or blind faith because not just the Bible, but history is full of people that have given it all and haven't regretted any of it. So what does that mean for us? Thing means this. We have to embrace that God has saved us and He's called us, but not for ourselves. Following Jesus means helping somebody else follow Jesus. I know sometimes we can wait for the end of a message and say, all right, what do I have to do, John? What should I do now? Um, And what I would say is this. What we're going to do today uh, is after we're done, um, Joe's going to come up here and play some, and we're just going to leave a time. It's not even 12 yet. And we're just going to take some time and pray. And here's what I want you to pray. God, what would you have me use my life for? And who would you have me use it for? God, what would you have me use? What do you really want me to do with my life? How do you want me to spend it? And who do you want me to spend it on? I think sometimes if we could put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, we find ourselves discontent because we're looking for ultimate purpose on a lake instead of listening to God. We're looking to find fulfillment and contentment in the jobs that we have, the relationships that we have, the things that are right in front of us instead of saying, God, what... Yeah, yeah. What would you have me to do? And we're gonna spend some time praying um, to a God who is not an introvert by any stretch of the means. God loves to reveal Himself, and so we're gonna take some time and just ask that God would do just that. Can so feel free to pray in your seat as Joe prays. I'll have pastors, deacons, pastoral interns um, come up to the front, and we'll just. Take some time. If you want to come down and pray with somebody, uh, pray, God, what would you have me do with my life? If that's too broad for you, then just say, God, what would you have me do with my week? And who would you have me spend it on? If that's too broad for you, say, God, what would you have me do with my day? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we know that you've called us to walk with you, and that means that there's something that we have to walk away from, and quite frankly, Lord, I know there's some of us in here that that thought terrifies us because we look at our lives, and we may think that our lives are great right now, and we don't want to disrupt anything. Father, I pray if that's anybody in here uh, that you would just give them a sight of the future, that they would be reminded of not just the fragility, but the fickleness of life, Lord. Even if things are good right now, one phone call could change everything. Help us not to place our hopes in anything that can be snatched from us by one phone call or one stray bullet or one wrong decision. Father, would you remind us that you sent your Son into the earth? To bring us to you, to give us an experience with you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, give us perspective. Help us to be willing of let go, to let go of any and everything that stands in the way of us experiencing you and finding our true joy. We ask that you would do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray.